You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Tonight, we are delighted and honored to have with us two very distinguished masters of crime fiction. We have Kara Black and Jacqueline Winspear. Both have recently published books. We're happy to be celebrating Kara Black's Three Hours in Paris. Uh, published by Soho Press, and uh, Jacqueline Winspear's essay titled Writing About War in the new anthology titled Private Investigations, Mystery Writers on the Secrets, Riddles, and Wonders in Their Lives, and this is published by Seal Press. So this evening's discussion will explore the writing of fiction that takes place during World War II Europe. Uh, much can be said about the complexities of placing one's writing in such a dynamic historic period. Uh, both authors have much experience with this and will be offering their thoughts about their methods of research, their interpretations of history, the process of writing, and developing characters that live against the backdrop of cataclysmic world events. Uh, of course, parallels can be made between our current moment and that of the period in which they write. Um, their work offers us much food for thought, and while at the same time serving as enticing page turners, you'll find intricate plotting and multifaceted and unusual characters. They produce works that speak to us on many different levels, so there is much to talk about tonight. So before we begin, a word about our authors. Kara Black is one of our great masters of the crime novel. She is the author of the best-selling Emmy Leduc series from her classic Murder in the Marais through to her most recent uh, Murder in Bel Air. She enters into those dark atmospheric corners of Paris, blurring the edges between mystery and thriller in very compelling, very delicious ways. So as mentioned before, um, her most recent novel is Three Hours in Paris and is something of a departure from her series, but no less exciting. I mean, it follows very much in the theme of tonight's discussion. Um, Jacqueline Winspear is the author of the celebrated Maisie Dobbs series, following the renowned psychologist and investigator Maisie Dobbs through her exploits in World War II London. Uh, the most recent novel in the series is The American Agent, published by HarperCollins. Uh, additional books in the series include To Die But Once, uh, In This Grave Hour, uh, Journey into Munich, amongst others. Uh, in Maisie Dobbs, Ms. Winspear has crafted a character of emotional depth and complexity much suited to the times in which she is said to live. Uh, if you enjoy suspense and tension, uh, the flow of these plots uh, will really have you sitting on the edge of your seat. So they're not to be missed. So uh, tonight's talk will be followed by a question and answer period. Uh, I encourage that everyone use the texting function found in the chat mode at the bottom of your screen to ask questions of the authors. We will collect them and then present them at the beginning of the Q&A period. So, Greatly honored and delighted to have with us Kara Black and Jacqueline Winspear. Uh, welcome to City Lights Live. Well, thank thank you. you. Good to be yeah, here. Welcome. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Peter. Hi, Jackie. Hi, everyone. Thank you oh, for having us. It. Yeah, thank you very, very much indeed. This is what they call real social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Jackie and I actually were going to do this this same evening in person, right, at City Lights with Peter at the store, but we're doing it virtually with you. So we're still on schedule. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. So um, 
I guess, l l shall we kick off things then, Cara? Sounds good. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to, to get uh, your perspective on this. And, you know, war is such a compelling subject, the very nature of war and everything that it, it encompasses and, you know, what it offers the writer. And I wonder if you could speak to that, particularly with regard to your latest book, which really throws us, you know, into the thick of it. So, you know, what, what do you think of that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, my latest book, Three Hours in Paris, is set in June 1940, two weeks into the German occupation of Paris. So it's a very different time for me from my series. But I think, I mean, the complexities and I mean, the subtle and not so influ subtle influences of war that affects gen the generation that goes through the war, each succeeding generation, um, you know, that's kind of incalculable. Um, and so I think that's, it's also war is a time when there's great stress, mm -hmm. when things change, when the stakes are high, um, it affects society and people are tested. Mm -hmm. Certainly in our books, they're tested, right? They're, and, well, they're absolutely tested. And um, it's really interesting what you said about um, war affecting generations. There's a, a book called uh, War Child. It's by uh, Martin Parsons, who was the a founder of the department, into, it was the Institute of Research into the War Child at a un, Reading University in, in the UK. And one of the areas he particularly looked at was the impact of World War II on children. And he looked at evacuation. You know, my mom was, and her sisters and brothers were evacuated during the war, um, went to live with complete strangers, you know, which was horribly stressful for them and, and just marked them forever. But what he said was that any experience of war remains within the family system for three generations. So any experience of war, and you know, I, I, I absolutely know it does. Absolutely know it does. So it's really interesting that, that you, you mentioned that point. Yeah, Murder in the Marais, my first Emily Duke book, was based on my friend Sarah's mother, who was a hidden Jewish girl in the Marais. Well, uh, Sarah is the survivor of her mother and Sarah would talk to me about that you know about how her mother was it was definitely affecting Sarah mm -hmm. and Sarah's daughter who's now a young woman and so it's very much you know I can see in the grandchild Sarah's yeah. daughter the effect and of, and of course and the things she would tell me about her mother the little quirks and things about you know that would come out about being hidden and not you know not making noise or always having your bag packed at the front door in case, mm -hmm. and and her mother still did that. Yeah, you know, yeah, it doesn't go away. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. it's like um, Peter has asked both of us to to read a little piece, and um, I, this might be a good moment for, for me to read the little piece that I prepared, if that if that's okay. And Please it do. is from that anthology, uh, writing about uh, and the uh, private investigations. You're you're in that as well, Cara. We talked about that, and. Yeah. Um, my essay was called Writing About War. And I, I really wanted to find out about other writers as well, um, what different writers thought and what kind of landscape it gave them as writers. Um, but I started off with a personal story. So I'm just gonna whip through this and then we'll, then we'll get back on the topic again. So it was a Saturday morning, the day when we went into the town some two miles away to do the shopping. The town in question was more like a village, 
But because the city, town, village, hamlet designation in England is based upon the size of the church, and our community had a very large ancient church, it was known as a town. My father worked on Saturdays and we had no car, plus you couldn't get those big silver cross prams onto a bus in those days, so my mother pushed the pram with my baby brother tucked inside, and me, four years of age, walking beside her. Not only would we do the grocery shopping, but my mother also returned library books for the elderly people on our street, which was most of the people on our street. And she chose new books based upon their reading preferences. My mother and father were London people who'd moved to rural Kent, England, to get away from the World War II bomb sites that would not be cleared for decades. In fact, the last bomb sites were dealt with when construction began for the 2012 London Olympics. And frankly, as newlyweds in 1949, mum and dad couldn't find a place to live because housing was a premium, was at a premium. Tens of thousands of people had been made homeless due to years of bombing, and it would take many years to provide decent accommodation for those who had lost so much. So families lived together, and newlyweds moved in with a set of in-laws, which my mother didn't take to at all. And if truth were told, she had to leave London to get away from her memories. On that day, more than 15 years after the war ended, we were walking toward the grocery store when I needed to use the bathroom. So we turned up the lane by the side of the post office towards the quote unquote public conveniences. Then the fire siren sounded. With a partial force of volunteer firemen, the town siren was used to summon them to the fire station. And it was the same siren used to warn of an air raid warning during the air raid during the war. The second that siren began its wail from a low cry to a full-blown crescendo, my mother grabbed my brother from the pram, took me in her arms and cowered in a doorway. I remember seeing the animal-like fear in her eyes as she looked up, scanning the sky above. Yet people on the street went about their day, not noticing a young woman paralyzed with fear while grasping her children to her. It's all right, mummy, I said, tugging at her sleeve to get her attention. There's no bombs. It's all right. It's only the firemen. You see, though young, I knew instinctively what was ailing her, that the siren had dragged her back through the years to a time when people were told to keep calm and carry on, despite seeing death and destruction every single day for years on end. And I'll stop there. Very moving. Personal experience. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know. I. I think that that sort of was an illustration of, of the point you made, you know, about war lingering for an awfully long time and what you saw in, in your friend and um, the children and so on. Yeah, very much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, husband, husband making an appearance there or leaving. Um, yeah, no, very much so. You know, I, um, and I've heard stories like that as well. I was once in Germany at a, at a cemetery and there was an older woman there who um, was uh, had put flowers on graves, and and there was a whole area that was just a big expanse. And I said to her, "I'm sorry, we were trying to get out of the cemetery. It was huge, and it was in Leipzig. How could we get out? And why was this? There were no uh, gravestones here." She goes, "Oh, that's from my block. You know, when I was little, the." Um, you know, they bombed the buildings and they couldn't, they just put everybody in a mass grave. Yeah. And she would come and put uh, flowers on it for them. Yeah. And here she was, you know, just mm. coming every week to put flowers in this big expanse and mm -hmm. 
yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't know her personally, but it really struck me that when I heard that. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting story because there was a similar, I mean, that happened in London an awful lot and throughout, you know, the cities that were bombed throughout the United Kingdom. You know a lot of that about that because you've been doing the research for, for your book. But I can remember um, there was um, when I was, oh gosh, I must have been in my teens. And my mom was reading the newspaper and she always liked to read the letters, you know, that people write up. And this ge gentleman had written to the paper saying that, um, he, he had just moved to this given area in London, and my mum knew the area very well. And he said, I'm not sure, but there's this mound of where there's a flower garden. And, you know, every time I take my dog for a walk, the dog goes there and does not stop barking. And I don't know why. What, what is it about the place? And it has, he spoke about this energy, and my mum said, well, someone should tell him exactly what happened there. All the little children in the school that were killed when the bomb dropped. You know, and it was, um, it was a nursery school, so it's probably um, as mothers and children. And, you know, you just think of that, that but, but at the same time, people, you know, and I was thinking about this throughout, obviously, you know, the, what we've just been through and so many people saying, well, it's like war. And the fact is that it, it really isn't because, you know, we're at home and we're, a lot of us, not everyone, but we're safe and so on. Um, and, um, you know, I think of, of sort of my mom living in London and other, my friends who lived uh, in Northern England and, and their parents were living there when they were bombed and so on. And, you know, you went down to the shelter, you, you, you spent the night there and you got up in the morning and you went to work. And maybe if you were lucky, you could get a wash somewhere, you know, maybe you had a change of clothes somewhere, but you, cause you still had to go to work. Life had to go on. Even Definitely. Though, yeah. Know, I mean, they didn't have Netflix or worry about toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> I think they worried about toilet paper actually. <laughs> well, you know, loo yeah, paper, know. whatever, a newspaper. Um, what I'm also interested too is what the traces that are left. Like you talked about this mound with yeah. the flowers. Um, at the Ministry of Marine, you know, the sea uh, ministry, yeah. I found all this German graffiti from, you know, uh, soldiers or naval cadets mm. who were there. And it was just amazing, you know, I mean, soldiers graffiti. and. Some of them, you know, were young men. I mean, some of them were, you know, childish and, you know, all, yeah. all kinds of, you know, soldiers graffiti. And so I, what I took was they had left it in there. And I took that and I made that a character. I wanted to explore who this um, naval, uh, you know, cadet would be stationed there. And I gave him a role in the story because I just wanted to, to, to see who he would be, you know. But there's traces like that, the graffiti. I mean, in Paris, there's the bullet holes, uh, the bullet marks that are left there today. There are, um, you know, uh, it, you can feel the history. Yeah, you know, especially, absolutely. Especially when my friends were sending me photos, you know, from Paris and Instagram photos, how deserted it was. Mm -hmm. It was like the past, you know, when yeah. people oh didn't gosh. go out after curfew. Yeah. Well, do you remember that? Um, Oh gosh, that documentary I sent you where it showed actually Paris during the war and yes. uh, some of the things there. And I sent you because I thought, oh, Cara should see this. And, and yes. uh, I think it, you know, just to give a sense of it. Yeah, shows everybody we all talk to each other, <laughs> sort of mystery yeah. writers. Um, <laughs> yeah, she was saying, it, you need to look at this. I went, yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's interesting, you know, as, as a kid, I grew up in the country because my, my parents really did 
absolutely wanted to get away from London and, uh, and, and the bomb sites and everything. And yet we used to go up to London to see our relatives and we used to go up on the train or the, the bus or as they call it in Britain, the coach. And I can remember being a little girl and, and we'd go from, you know, our area, which is all green fields and as far as the eye could see and, um, you know, very rural agricultural area. And then you'd get into first suburbia, which always looked like too many red buses to me. And then into London and the, you know, my cousin, I used to go out to play with my cousins and we'd be scrubbing over bomb sites. We thought it was great yeah. fun, you know, and, um, and until someone would come along and say, get out of there. And, and yet having said that, where I grew up, I still remember there was this old cottage, probably a 15th century cottage with a big dip in the roof. And, you know, living in Kent, I mean, the Battle of Britain happened over the skies of Kent. It was known as the frontline county. And um, a lot of the bombers on their way back to bases in France and other parts of Europe, the German bombs were just any, any bombs then already dropped their drop in Kent. And, um, and literally in the war, a bomber dropped on that roof and bounced off. <laughs> so, and it left this big divot, <laughs> you know. Um, oh, they're still finding bombs everywhere, you know, mm -hmm. especially um, on the Atlantic coast. Th things are always, you know, washing up. I remember I was there with my mines, husband. Mines. But, yeah, and also grenades because my husband is a surfer and we were down at Biarritz and um, there were all these bunkers that were falling in the ocean and my son was going around. He found these grenades that were still washing up. And of course I freaked out, but they were, you know, they were not um, active. But there's things in Germany all the time. But also in Paris, there were um, many houses, many buildings had shelters. My yes. friend actually did a book on them. Wow. And he was, yeah, it was amazing. So, so I would help him sometimes and we would go out and he would look at one. And, and of course I could use that in my stories. But um, there were these shelters and how people made them and they're still there i mean you go to go to someone's house and you go down to their cob right their cellar to put their things away and they'll be part of a, a shelter you know from from mm -hmm. the war you know mm -hmm. but also these things were were you know over the 20 years i've been writing the amy leduc books i was always getting these nuggets mm -hmm. and of course my stories were not set during the war but i knew they they deserve you would you know to be told yeah. it's funny seeing that excitement in your face talking about that coming across that nugget you know and i know one of the things i i wanted to ask you and, and in a way you sort of told me was was you know that about your your journey of looking for those nuggets and and sometimes you don't have to look for i, I guess it's kind of like panning for gold you know when you're doing your research yeah. You're just looking for that little something, and I wonder if you can tell us about some of the some little some things that you found in in your know, three hours in in Paris. Oh know. yeah, I mean, I I found many things over all these years, and I was always, you know, of course, writing in my notebook when I was in Paris and writing for the Amy books. But there were always these bits that did not go in the Amy book, and they deserved their own notebook. And then I'd go to the flea market, and I'd find these incredible photos, black and white photos, and I have tons of them from 1940, you know, from all these, you know, family pictures or what it looked like, you know, and, and, you know, what did the markets look like? And I was like, these are amazing. So I, I really, when I really got down to writing the story, I could put all these black and white photos up and look at it, you know, how they dressed, right? Wearing those ankle socks, you know, with the sandals and, 
I didn't have to, you know, look in old magazines. I could see how people were dressed or the bandanas or depending on the year of the, of the occupation, seeing them in line. And what was so amazing is that I found one of these, you know, photos at the flea market and I was looking at it and I was staying with my friend and I would always go to the boulangerie, you know, the bakery mm -hmm. on her yeah. corner. And, and then I was looking and I was like, and I walked a different way and it was like, this was the bakery in the, one of the photos I had bought at the flea market. Wow. But all the women were in line. I mean, they were, it was kind of like now, only they weren't socially distanced, but they were standing in line, you know, with their children or a basket waiting to buy bread. Mm -hmm. this same bakery so I could see it today and then I could look at it then and that really made me think it's not that long ago you know no um, that women were standing in line with ration coupons to get bread and absolutely for hours on end hours on end. but you know, you're talking about what, what women what I always remember my mom telling me that one of the things they used to do because you couldn't get stockings I mean, you certainly couldn't get decent silk stockings but you, you, you just couldn't get stockings was that they would um uh, soak their legs in, in a um, potassium permanganate and water, which gives your legs a tan. And yeah. then you get your best mate, and hopefully she was a good friend, with an eyebrow pencil to draw the seam up the back of your leg. And, she's, and my mum said, and if your friend didn't want, didn't want you to look as good as her, she'd give you a little squiggle up the back of the leg. <laughs> so you always had to make sure those seams were straight, you know. Yeah, um, they yeah. did that in Paris too. They drew that line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the fake seam. Yeah. Fake yeah, seams, um, but, yeah. But there were all these things. And um, I think it was maybe a few years ago when I, I found this footnote in history, literally a footnote about... Hitler's visit to Paris in 1940 yes. came right after the armistice was signed. He came for three hours, hence the title of my yeah. book, yeah. <laughs> Three Hours in Paris. And I was like, well, why would he only come for three hours? Why didn't he have a victory parade down the Champs-Élysées? Why, when, you know, he was such a, you know, ardent, uh, you know, wannabe artist when he was young and he... You know, he loved French culture. Why didn't he stay Why was he in and out so fast? Yeah. Never to return. Mm -hmm. Never to return. So my mind started spinning. And at the time, um, they were planning, as you know, I mean, Operation Sea Lion, the German uh, uh, yes. plan to, you know, invade Britain. I mean, it existed. It was going to happen. It did not. Oh, um, everybody but, was expecting it. Exactly, exactly. And it was a real threat. It didn't happen. But so there was all that going on. And then I found, um, so, I'm, so I'm always getting these kind of bits and bobs and, and putting them somewhere. And then I saw, um, it's on YouTube, you can watch the newsreel of Hitler visiting Paris for three hours. And, you know, it was very doctored. But the two men that were in his entourage, Albert Speer, the architect and mm -hmm. Arno Brecker, his sculptor. They, you know, they're pictured there. And uh, they both survived the war. They wrote uh, their memoirs, recounting. And Arno Brecker said, yes, you know, and we see the picture. He was, you know, it was June 23rd. Hmm. Albert, Albert Speer, in his accounts, it was June 28th. Huh, that's interesting. I said, they're there's a story there. That's yeah. the what if. I said something, what? 
if something happened? What if, you know, and it was plausible because, you know, French people are volatile. I mean, they were then, they are now. We know no. that. <laughs> I know. Passionate, that. passionate. <laughs> but, you know, two weeks into the occupation, who knew what could happen, actually? You know, no yeah. one really knew. Um, it was all up in the air. Very few, very, it's not very well documented yeah. at all. And, you know, I mean, they, when they actually printed a newspaper June 23rd, which I found, I found it, was one page. Yeah. You know. Because there weren't, people weren't printing. Yeah. It was, things had closed down. It was just a very odd time. So that was a time that I just was, I just had to write this story. I had to write this story. I had a, a similar thing happen, um, except I guess the other way around, when I was writing the books up there behind me, uh, The American Agent. And I, I really wanted to, to write this book, um, a, which is, Essentially, what's at the heart of it are the, the quote-unquote war casters, uh, particularly American war casters that were operating in, in Britain from deep in, in the sort of bowels of the BBC, you know, Edward R. Morrow mm. uh, and people like that, uh, and also the British war casters, as they call them, and, and the impact that they had um, yes. in, in America and so on. But I had this other um, piece that, you know, there's a, a character that I wanted to bring back, um, Mark Scott from Journey to Munich. I had to bring him back because I've got a bit of a crush on him. And um, I, can I, tell. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted him to be um, <clears throat> in London. And uh, gosh, if no one's read this, then uh, if people haven't read this, I'm, I, I don't want to give too much away. But suffice it to say, he's investigating someone who's quite high profile and who really was quite high profile and turns out to be a bit of a rascal. Um, but so that I invented this this story of the FBI agent, uh, where he's with the Justice Department, which um, it, it it's it, it it all had different names then, um, but he's an agent and of the with the um, uh, Justice Department, and which is basically became the F, officially became the FBI, and uh, he's of course he's he's in London, and lo and behold, as I was about two thirds of the way through writing the book, I happened to be reading the newspaper one day and it was about recently um, released records. And of course, some of these records, the, 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 the sort of the, the true stories, if you're, they're archived for X number of years after exactly. the war. It's 50, mm -hmm. I think it was it's, oh, 75 years or whatever. It depends on how um, delicate the information is. And there really was an FBI agent in London, um, working directly for the president, you know, um, keeping an eye on this, this one particular person who is a- Truth is stranger than fiction, and it, yes. Uh, oh my goodness, he's really existed. Uh, and there's me thinking I've sort of made up the whole scenario, which of course I had, but it, was yeah. really, it really happened. And it's amazing. So that the, the times that that happens when you are creating a story and you find that this particular event, in some way, it's, it mirrors what, what really happened. Um, yeah, talking about records, um, it's Section D, which um, was the precursor yeah. of SOE Special Operations yeah, Executive Section and D. Maisie. Yeah, so Section D, I had never heard about it until mm -hmm. I found this article that these files had been declassified. And, you know, people really don't know much about Section D. A lot of the files were uh, destroyed, you know, in a mysterious fire, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that all this came out, it was the precursor. So it was also, um, Churchill needed a win after Dunkirk. 
And a lot of these people that were in Section D were seat of the Panzers. They were yeah. not from those uh, elite uh, old boy elite schools. It the wasn't old the old boy, the old school the old school old time. School network. Yeah, it was very different. People who were inventors, yeah. people who were foreigners. And so my character is Kate is an American woman, a big boned gal from Oregon, is recruited by Section D. And maybe I could just read that. Read that bit. Yeah. It's very short. No, no, no. Carry on. Carry on. Carry on, MacDuff. (laughs) Carry on, MacDuff. Okay. So this is when uh, Stephanie, who is from Section D, we find out later, who is the recruiter for Kate, um, after he's recruited her, is what he says. Stephanie cleared his throat to get her attention. We have limited time, Mrs. Reese. Please, listen closely. Try to remember everything I say. If nothing else, remember these letters, R-A-D-A. He gave her a half smile. No, it's not the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, but that will help you remember. Burn the letters in your brain. Make them second nature. Rada, read, assess, decide. This stands for read the situation, assess possible outcomes, decide on options, act on your decision. Can you repeat that? She did. You'll have practice examples later. Think those letters, Rada, to yourself constantly, every moment of every hour, wherever you are, walking on the street, in the shop, boarding the metro, any moment a German soldier might stop and demand your papers. It's impossible to avoid them. So you need to be prepared. Always have the story ready, but be flexible according to the situation. Use your intuition, your instinct. Rada. (laughs) Something to remember. You know what, it's really funny you're getting onto this subject because even though the SOE was supposed to be very secret, you know, and it, a lot of people didn't even know about it till what, 20 years ago, something like that. They when couldn't I, talk about it because they signed the Official Secrets Act. Well, absolutely. That's something for a different reason that my mum had to sign during war. But when um, I was, again, a child in, in, in Kent, my, I guess I must have only been about three and a half. My mum used to talk to me, by the way, as if I was just, you know, a little adult human rather than a child. <laughs> she was one of those mothers, you know. What do you mean the duck goes quack, quack? We don't have any of that around here. <laughs> um, but we, again, we, we were walking down this road near where we were living. As I say, it was quite a, a rural area. And I can remember we were walking along and this lady came towards us. And we ended up seeing her every day. And, she, and, and by the way, this cottage we were living on was right at the edge of what was known as crown property, um, which meant it, be- it belonged to the crown. It was managed by then uh, Forestry Commission and the farmers had uh, leased their farms from the, the, the crown. And um, so anyway, this lady came towards us and, and I still remember she had her rain hat over her eyes and she, her Macintosh was always tied and she hands in pocket, Wellington boots, boom, 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 marching along. And first of all, she never said hello back. And then she softened and said hello. And then one day as she passed, she was a bit further down. My mum leaned down towards me and said, 
she's one of those women that parachuted into France during the war. And, and how, when must this have been? This is the end of the 50s. You know, that dates me. But and I can remember looking up at my mum and saying, what's a parachute? And that's when she realized perhaps that's a story for another time. But the funny <laughs> thing is, in that village, everybody, I mean, almost everybody knew who she was or what she had done because she lived in what was called a grace and favor house. Mm. One of the old houses that was on that prop, on that, in that area, that belonged to the monarch. Uh, or to the monarch, to the, to the queen. Well, it belonged to the crown. So it was not exactly the queen's house, but it belonged to that, I guess, crown estates or whatever they were called at the time. And it was one of those properties, and they still very much exist, that was given to someone who had served the country by the grace of the monarch for favors rendered. And mm. it, it, it's some combination of that sort of phrase. Sure. And, and she could live in that house for the rest of her life. Um, and and I, will, I will never forget her. And in fact, it's one of the little stories I, I've told in my sort of upcoming memoir about my childhood and, uh, and stayed with me. And you, of course, I'm, 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 I am going to head towards that woman at some point to make a, a story around her because she's so vivid in my mind's eye. But I don't know if I ever told you this, but um, Vera... Atkins, Atkins, you yeah. know, who was, uh, was that Vera Atkins? No, it you wasn't, think? but she lived near my parents for a while in, uh, she lived oh, in she's... Winchelsea in, wow. I believe a grace and favor house in, in Winchelsea in Sussex. And then she later, um, in fact, there are photographs in a, a book about her with, um, um, Buckmaster, I think is, you know, um, who, uh, when he was visiting her, but she later, uh, Vera passed away in, um, um, a nursing home on the coast in, in Sussex. But no, that wasn't Vera. <laughs> well, I just I said, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> that in uh, this French village that we would go and stay in down, down below Lyon, that one of the famous, um, oh, Marcel Kamertz, he was British and Belgian, and he ran a whole network down in the South. Mm -hmm. He had lived in that village. And he actually lived there and I mean, he was alive until the 90s and we would have been there or gone shopping in that village or, you know, I'm like, oh, why didn't I know that, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, someone who had this, you know, but that's the whole thing, you know, our generation or, you know, I mean, we, we remember those things or, you know, we were influenced by those things. My Absolutely. cousin, my mother's cousin, who was really a cousin to us was an American um, pilot. Well, no, he wasn't a pilot, sorry. He was on, uh, you know, in the Air Force. He was the bombardier. He was the guy at the end of the bomb, yeah. you yeah. know, in this big, and he was stationed in the UK. Horrible, and they would, horrible job. Yeah, he would, they would go to Italy and, and bomb. Mm. And he remember, and I, I didn't find this out until I was much older. I never knew. I mean, he had bipolar, but he was also uh, very depressed. That, the day his uh, crew went to bomb Italy, he was really sick and he couldn't go on the flight and they never came back. Mm. And that was something that was, you know, flavored throughout his life, I mean, according, according to who he was. But I never knew those things until I was much older, you know. And of course, we, we could never ask him about it. And as I've always said, you know, with people like us, Cara, you know, with storytellers, when we find out these things, when we hear about these, there's only one thing you can do with it, isn't there, really? It, it, it's to tell a story and right. have it be um, part of the story, either something that you work with or something that becomes a vignette. You know, for example, um, or 
I use this this image um, in in the American Agent, and uh, it, it but in a slightly different way. Um, one of my aunts um, who's still alive, I, I, she told me this story last year actually at her 90th birthday party that um, uh, she was 16 at the time. She there'd been a, a daytime bombing, and um, so my mum must have been about 17 and a half. Um, cause there's, there was 18 months between each one of my grandmother's 10 kids. And, um, so there'd been a bombing at this factory and my aunt was sent home because, you know, they couldn't do anything. And she was stumbling through the, the streets. And, and she said she was really distraught because they, they just did a bombing. She said it was terrible afterwards. The, the house is on fire, people scrabbling everywhere. And she said she remembered passing this area where some houses had received a direct hit and there was a woman with her bare hands just raking at the rubble and people were trying to pull her off and she was yelling my girls my girls my girls are in there and she was on her hands and knees getting just blood streaming from her fingers and her legs and my aunt said it, it, it was just you know and these things come home to roost with people you know my mother was the same as uh, my late mother was the same as she got into her 70s and 80s that these images, they just wouldn't go away. And mm. my aunt said that, you know, she was walking along trying to get home because she didn't know whether she still had a home. And then yeah. she saw her father with my mum walking because they had come to find her and being encircled by my mum's my arms and just holding her as she just wept over what she had just seen. You know, it's uh, amazing. So yeah. It's remarkable. But, you know, I think as a writer, you hear stories like that and you think this has to go, this has to, this is like, you, you, you slot it in like a piece of a jigsaw puzzle, I think. It's, it's exactly. another image yes. so that the reader can be there as well. It's, and it's, it's the small things too, Jackie, it because it's not quite as poignant, but I remember being with my friend in Paris, she's Irish. And we went to the Irish Cultural Center, which is in this gorgeous old building. Mm. And it had been a prisoner of war, um, place as well but now they have uh, receptions and it's in the latin quarter and so we were there and looking at this thing and there were these two older people one was this little man very small um and you can always tell if they you know grew up during the war because they're very short because they had no you know they had they run what 1200 1800 yeah. calories yeah. a day i mean ration you can tell those people and he was talking with this woman and she was going to the two of them and they were going, oh, but you remember those blue lights during the occupation? And my ears went up, right? And I'm like, okay, okay, let's hear what this is What's about. What's a blue light? <laughs> yeah, what's this blue light? Tell me about it. And, and he, my friend was going, like, why are you so curious? I go, because that sounds so cool. And she was going, and, we were, and then we got into this big conversation. But during, but during the occupation, and maybe they did this in London, they blued the lamppost, you know, the, because of the planes that yeah. would bomb. They, they right? had various methods, yeah. But they were doing it in Paris, so they would yeah. paint it this blue, so it was very murky. Yeah. yeah. And I had never read about this, never. And so then she was going, you remember, you know, and we were always, you know, that's why my, you know, I was talking to her, she said, that's why my legs were black and blue all during the war, because we couldn't see a damn thing. <laughs> we were, oh, we were so trying funny. to... Yeah, we couldn't get, yeah. we'd be walking to try or go over the gutter and we'd stumble and fall and our legs were black and blue. It's and so funny you should say that because my friend's mom, um, and I was just talking to her about this not long ago. I said to my friend, you know, 
you know, because she was raised in Leeds in the north of England. I said, you know, what did your mum ever talk about the war? And she said, she said, well, here's the one thing I can remember. And it really speaks to what you've said, um, Carl. Um, and, she, and so my friend said to me, what I can remember, she says, well, my mum had this massive scar on her leg where they were walking along and she, she just caught herself. She fell over the rubble, you know, because no one could see mm -hmm. where they were going. And there was a piece of yeah. metal there that caused this huge cut in her leg. But yes, you, everybody was always back and black and blue. Oh but, but that never goes down in very, you know, yeah. that's not something people put down. And I was thinking about all those things, you know, that we don't, you know, think about or know about. And I thought, yeah, black and blue legs, um, hurrying to get home before curfew, what would happen after curfew, what, you know, people certainly mm -hmm. tried to get around it, you know, different ways. And trying to find these recountings because what I found is that a lot of people would not put these simple things that to us are fascinating, you know, about daily life during the occupation, you know, uh, what kind of, you know, how often could they go to the big mm. bath? People didn't have bathrooms per no. se. They would go public baths. They had public baths. They had them all through London. Yeah. 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 And, and so it, when could you go and when the water was hot? Yeah. There was no coal and, you know, so... Yeah. In, in could Britain, you go, they, go to a movie too. I mean, were the movies warm, yeah. you know, and they were for a while. It's funny. That reminds me of my mom. I remember my mom telling me about uh, going to see a movie. And I think she said it had Alan Ladd in it. I don't know, but it was someone <laughs> that she had a crush on. And she said that, or well, maybe it was, I or maybe it was Gone with the Wind. I don't know. It could have been Gone with, and she said she, she'd had, she'd saved some money and she was in the movie theater and suddenly the air raid siren went off and she said, she looked around at other people. She said, I'm not, I'm not leaving. And she said, and there were a handful of people that just refused to leave. We just want to see the end, you know, um, right. my gosh, all these yeah. stories, you know, and it's, um, you know, you're talking about queuing up for um, uh, not getting enough food and so on. I mean, oh, yeah. London wasn't occupied, but I mean, it certainly, there was not enough food. And I had this memory of being 16 and, one of my friends went on a diet. So I thought, well, I wonder what a diet is. Maybe I should go on one. You know, it's kind of a stupid thing you do when you're a teenager. And I came home and I said to my mom, so mom, when you were my age, what did you do for a diet? And she just rolled up laughing. And then she said, and then she got kind of serious. And she said, Jackie, she said, when I was your age, it was all I could do to get enough to eat. So don't you talk to me about your silly diets. I mean, she was really miffed. But it was, I was with, yes, I know. I was with my friend's mother and we were in the Marche d'Aligre, one of the really oldest markets in Paris. And we were buying, you know, we were buying vegetables. We were going to cook or something. I were there and, and there were these, I guess they're rutabagas or like Jerusalem artichokes. They're really ugly, right? Mm -hmm. But everybody, you know, it's now, it's kind of, they serve it in these uh, Nouvelle Cuisine, you know, with foam. And this, <laughs> right? um, so I was saying to her, oh, I read about this. We could do that. We could make it with this foam or something. She said, that? No, I won't even look. I can't yeah. stand the smell. I eat that every day if I was yeah. lucky. I will not have that in my house. Yeah. And it was such a strong emotion, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, and I said, I'm yeah. sorry, I didn't know. She said, yeah, you don't know, but no way. We're not making that yeah. <laughs> with the foam or no foam. Yeah. And I thought that's really true, you know, and chicory, right? Because there was no mm. coffee Oh, uh, well, or well, chestnuts. Oh, and, can yeah. coffee with chicory. It's so funny because food is such an emotive um, yeah. aspect of life. It's, it's so it much is. emotion around it and, and lack of food. 
And I think that's, uh, and in fact, when I wrote The Care and Management of Lies, a lot of that is all about food and war and love and food and war. And uh, it's amazing the impact it has. And yet it's something that people sometimes forget. And, and yet it's, it's, when you bring it into story, it adds, I think, such a richness. You know, I know when it's I'm It's that reading, detail that senses yeah, it, you know, the yeah, telling detail. Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, t talking about the telling detail, it's, um, although it's a different war, it's in World War One. you know, I, I used to do an awful lot of research at the Imperial War Museum in the archive there, which was an amazing place. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting what we were talking about, finding a little detail, a little vignette, something that really um, underpins the story and places it in time. But I was, you know, what they used to do before you went to the archive, which you visited by appointment only. Um, out in Kew, right? It's out, yeah. outside of London. Uh, no, this is actually in um, Lam uh, Lambeth, Kennington. It's in Kennington, that area. And um, it's, it's actually the old Bethlehem Lunatic Asylum. Oh, I've been there. Bedlam. Oh, okay. Bedlam, yes. you know, as in the local yeah. dialect, Bedlam, and which I think is just the right place for a museum of war. And um, anyway, so I said what I was interested in, which was um, young, you know, new arrivals, new recruits arriving in France during this certain time, and I wanted to get their perspective. So I was reading through these letters, and they come in big boxes, and they're not just famous people's letters there. They're, you know, people have donated letters to and from um, service people from 1917 onwards because it's it's all a record of war and a record of a time and so I read through all these um, really very delicate um, pages you have to get used to the handwriting and I realized that for each bundle of letters there was a point where it, they became harder to read and I thought hmm it suddenly occurred to me there was a where did it happen so I went back through each thing you know taking the lid off you know, being very careful with the paper. And I realized that the point at which the letters became difficult to read was actually when they left what we might call basic training in, in Britain and then went over to France and were effectively, as we might say, deployed. And yeah. I thought, why do the letters suddenly become hard to read? And I looked at them and I compared some different you know, ink and so on. I thought, Oh my goodness me, it's the ink. And it took me, you know, I, I, had, I was looking at them for a few minutes and I realized that what must have happened, you know, they had troops converging on France from not just Britain, but the, or what, obviously the British Commonwealth. So that included Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa. And then you had uh, later on, obviously, troops from uh, the United States, but that was more sort of 1970, later 1917 but you had this influx. And I thought, I bet there was a run on ink and they had to water it down. But then you get to the emotional impact and you think, how would I feel if, and I think that's a, something that we writers ask ourselves quite a lot to try and get to that feeling. How would I feel if I'm just about to go up the line to the front line and uh, knowing that only two out of every five blokes are going to come back because that's how right. many were killed and that's and, in and, world, and in world war ii right yeah. your last letter home because the ink is going through the paper how would you it'd be like trying to do 
an email before you go out on patrol in Afghanistan and suddenly (laughs) your computer goes down and you cannot tell your nearest and dearest, I love you. Right. Well, like section D or SOE, I mean, they had like a six month, you know, life projection if they were that lucky. But I, I went to, it wasn't that, it, what's the name of the museum where the Winston Churchill war rooms are? That oh, you I go said you called the war rooms. Okay, I went there, and maybe I told you about this, and, I, and those are amazing because they are left. I think in 1948 when they closed, it's in the middle of London, you just go down these stairs. There's, you know, there's a lot and, more to it than just that. It goes all along. Well, and who knew, you know, and then you just go down there and it's like left how it was. Yeah. You've got the map room, which I was fascinated, that map room with all those little, you know, pins. Yeah. And then you've got the green melamine telephones and the this and then the, then you've got Churchill's secretary or, or, or the typist who had to have felt on the typewriters because he couldn't stand the clicking of the mm-hmm. typewriter. I mean, all these things. What a baby. Which, what a baby yeah. it was. <laughs> well, but I used that in the book because I thought that was just amazing. Absolutely. You know? And how they had to go in this very narrow, curvy uh, things way under the street and have those gas masks on them all the time because they thought that was still, an, mm-hmm. you know, something could happen. And just to be going in there and, you know, I could, I just really love that, how confined you felt and yet you're, you're, you're designing the strategies, you know, for the war. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just incredible. Um, and all that has to go in a book. You know, that was amazing that it was just left like that. Yeah. I mean, oh, yes. There's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot of, um, you know, because my mum my actually worked um, later on um, at Far, what's Faraday House, which is the big, uh, she was on the government telephone exchanges. And I think the green phone, a green phone was a phone that would scramble. Um, mm. or, it was, or it was a green phone with a red top. I can't remember. One of them was a scrambling yeah. phone. And probably everything yeah. was scrambled down there. Yeah. But, um, and the little room where, where Churchill would go and talk to FDR or something, yeah. this little cubicle. Yeah. 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 It's, all, all these stories are just so amazing. Interesting enough, you're talking about the fact that um, you know, a lot of stories weren't kept. In Britain, they had uh, this thing called mass observation where they literally, almost from the outset of war, got people to start um, keeping diaries, mm. and, uh, which they would, and they would send in their report, their, their diaries, so, and a bit about their everyday lives. So it was really a social history of the war. And in fact, there are several published um, accounts. And it's, you know, you get a that's, sense that's of treasure. Yeah. the ordinary extraordinariness of it all the ordinary extraordinariness and um and i think that's what, what always i think always um really touched me deeply listening to personal stories the and even as a kid when i listened to stories it was i, I guess it's no surprise i i go back to it all the time because i it, it's it's they're so rich and i know that when you go to paris and when you've done your research i mean the times we've sat down and you Mm-hmm. you're bursting with a story <laughs> oh yes thank yes i i am there is um, my friend i used to call him my boyfriend but he has a girlfriend now <laughs> oh that's no good how did that happen yeah, i know he's, like, he's 90 years old but you know he's you know, oh they're the best boyfriends your, yeah he said you had your chance you know that's what i said i know i did um but he was 14 years old and he was part of the resistance in paris and 
what what he told me was he was one of the when the mare you know the mare used to be like a ghetto you know the shtetl yes. it was jewish very poor very run down and the poorest people lived there unlike now and he was telling me he was on the Faubourg Saint Antoine, you know, as the Germans marched into Paris. Okay, he was a young boy, Jewish. His mother oh, was a mother and father. That? Mother oh. and father were communist, and they were from Poland. So he said there was three strikes against me: Jewish, communist, Polish. <laughs> but anyway, his father had fled uh, political repression in Poland. But they're walking in to Paris, they're marching on the, on the big boulevard. And he goes, um, there were people who, I mean, they used to have the, they called them the, the uh, merchants of four seasons, you know, they have mm -hmm. just a barrel cart with yeah. veg and fruit on it. Yeah. And so there we used to be everywhere in Paris, and they were there. And so as the German soldiers were coming in, one of the soldiers bought a, a big thing of bananas, and he handed it to my friend and other boys and gave them a banana and smiled at them and kept going. And he said, you know, I'd never eaten a banana. And it wow. was delicious. And they were very nice to us at the beginning. You know, it was yeah. like a honeymoon. But, you know, just think, you know, he was and he had to hide and his father was executed at a, at a concentration camp. Um, and he has all these incredible stories and he was hidden in the countryside. But could you imagine your first experience was with this big friendly soldier who hands you a banana and you've never tasted anything like it. You know, it's, so it's all full of uh, shades of gray. It's nothing black and white, you know? No, no. You know, I, I remember one of the stories that my mom told and uh, very different, but again, it was, I guess, generosity. It was her 17th birthday. And she, it was a Saturday and she was with two of her pals because you worked in the morning and then you had Saturday afternoons off and they went to Hyde Park in London. And uh, so this would have been 1944, the summer of 1944. And so there they are, two, you know, three girls, you know, they didn't crawl around malls in those days, they went to parks, I guess. <laughs> and three American you know, um, guys came to us, three young American airmen. And of course they started chatting up the girls and, sure. and they said, so girls, you know, what are you doing? You know, here, what are you doing here today? And one of them pointed at my mom and said, well, it's her birthday. And they said, oh, what did you get for your birthday? You know, and she just looked at them and said, oh, you know, you can't have been here long. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's wartime. She said, you know, we don't, we don't, no one gets presents. This is, it's a wartime, you know. And uh, they chatted for a while, and then the, the guy said, look, you know, meet you back here in an hour. And, and they kind of vanished, and the girls thought, oh, yeah, right, you know. And um, so they came back in an hour, and there were the three American lads with um, a big bouquet of flowers for my mum, plus chocolates, American chocolates, nylons for each of the three girls, and cigarettes. Ooh, and wow. Uh, nylons, you know. Big I mean, time. And I remember my mom saying that they were such fun. She said they called us honey and they jumped off the seats and pretended to say, gee, I'm a B-29 and things like that. And then they, they all said, you know, we've got to get back to our base now. And I can remember my mom saying to me, you know, that, that telling me that she that evening went into the air raid shelter. And she said, you know, does anybody want a chocolate? And of course, everybody, if you had American chocolate, you were that kind of girl. <laughs> no, we don't want chocolates. And mom said, oh, well. I'm going to eat them one, and she said she ate them one by one and gave a running commentary. This is the strawberry one, covered mm -hmm. in chocolate. 
more for us. And, yeah. uh, and then would anyone like a cigarette? No, no, you don't want to make it fine. And just smoked a cigarette. And she said, you know, she just felt very, um, I, I, I suppose, um, rebellious because she'd had a lovely, her birthday had been made so special in 1944 by yeah. three young Americans. And she said, you know, here's the thing. She said, it was wartime and we were all just kids. We were all just kids. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, uh, you know that, that always touches me is well the the people that lose their childhood to something. They're robbed they, of their childhood. They're robbed yeah. of their childhood. Um, and then that's the way it is. You know, yeah. again, not Naftali told me so many things about his father and how he had, you know, gone through. I mean, it took him twenty years to get a plaque put on the building in Harris where his father had hidden and you know done all these political things and. You know, um, didn't you get that, that was... in one of your books? Didn't you get that in one of your books? I think so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, some, yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's how long it took. But, you know, I mean, it's funny, the French, uh, it's a little different. I mean, I, it made me think mm. when you said the British uh, with the, you know, American soldiers thinking your mother was that kind of gal. But in France, I mean, everybody became a resistant, you know, at the, at yeah. the 12th hour, right? I mean, we've heard those stories. But they had this complicated thing this legacy you know there were the communists who were very strong politically um who nobody then um and then you have the gaullist and who was de gaulle he'd just gone off to the uk i mean he was really kind of nobody before you have other you know french military but they and then they have of course the people who collaborated with the germans uh who made money in the black market so you've got all these complex things and what did de gaulle try and do you know, he had to unite this country, you know, somehow and riven by, you know, these um, schisms or whatever you want to call uh, fractures of politics and collaboration or people who didn't. And again, about food, who was eating, who, who looked, you know, like they've been eating very well. They're like, oh, yeah, she's collaborating with the German or not. Mm -hmm. And so he had to pull these people together. So they didn't talk about things. Everything became like, let's just get on with it. We, we can't solve that. We're all going to be have been in the resistance. We don't talk about those things. We don't prosecute people. We need to get the heat back on. We need to produce enough food because rationing went on in France for another 10 years. Oh, I know it, it didn't, did in it, the UK. It, it did in the UK. It, didn't, it, it officially yeah. ended at the end of 1954. But you know what? There were still a lot of shortages after that. Sure. Well, our friend Tony Broadband often talks about that. You know? Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. And, and yeah, and it happened in France as well. So you yeah. can't have all these, uh, you know, people just want to move on with their life. They want to get an apartment. Like my friend's parents were also newly married. They couldn't find an apartment. They want to have food on the table. They want to work. People just put their energy to that, but they hadn't sort of solved mm. or talked through yeah what happened with, and, if there was time and, you know yeah. i don't know that people did to, to that extent you know there's there was very much a sense of of you just got to get on with it and it, right. and, and it's really interesting because when you just said those words there is exactly the words that i've i've heard people of that generation say well you just had to get on with it and it was because everybody was getting on with it you know you weren't the only person experiencing this so why Definitely. moan when you know the lady up the road has just lost her entire family or the entire family had just been killed or whatever you know because um i mean france was was occupied which which you know didn't happen to to britain 
But, you know, you mentioned de Gaulle. That's why he was in such a tricky position when he came to London, because yeah. he had to, um, he had, you know, it, it, London was giving him sanctuary. There were the free French there and so on and so forth. But he had to be seen not to be too pally with the British in case the French thought, you know, because the French were expecting that Britain would become invaded. And, okay, so is de Gaulle going to suddenly be in with the, you know, invading army? And, and so he was in a very tricky position. So in a way, he had to be seen to be, on the one hand, just just sort of not grateful, but, but just respectful enough, but not too respectful, because then he'd be seen to be almost collaborating with the British. And oh, and they didn't they, like the British because of the bombing of the super tanker or whatever down in Marseille. No, there was yeah. a lot of anti-British yeah. feeling, Even though which I was surprised to hear. Yeah, you know. yeah. It was, and I remember reading that, because uh, I've, I've been doing quite a bit of research on this lately for my next book, <laughs> um, and that, that de Gaulle said that, he said, um, I get angry when I'm right and Churchill gets angry when he's wrong, which means we're both angry most of the time, <laughs> uh, which, is, um, which, which fascinated me, you know, that these two um, sort of statesmen, so to speak, were, in, were at odds with, with each other, but hardly surprising. I mean, what, um, what strong characters they were, both with very firm ideas about what, how things should be done. And, and I love what de Gaulle said. He was like, how can you really govern a country with 365 uh, cheeses? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I love or that. 370, whatever he said, whatever. How can you actually, you know, govern a country with so many different kinds of cheeses? Because that implies that the people that live there and make those cheeses are, oh, everyone's different and unique, you know? Yeah. And they yeah. have their own way, you know? Yeah. Um, I did, you know, it was in, I, Churchill is in this book very briefly. Yes. Um, but I really wanted him to be there because he was, you know, he'd had, from what I discovered, I mean, he became, he was the first, uh, he was Admiralty, you know, head of the- First Lord of the Admiralty. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and then he became prime minister by the skin of his chinny chin chin, um, you know, in May, newly appointed or newly elected, uh, prime minister and he had to rally people and he had this whole debacle of Dunkirk he needed a win and I think that's that's what I really wanted to play with he was willing to gamble right I mean he was a gambler well he, he was was a gambler and and you see for much of his career he wasn't terribly successful I mean he made frankly quite a mess of a lot of things I mean people talk about his activities uh, in the Boer War in the First World War, we look at Gallipoli and so on and so forth. That aside, I think here's the one thing about Winston Churchill. He had the mark during the Second World War. He had, the, and he made mistakes then as well, but he may, had the mark of a leader. And the mark of a leader is someone who knows the mood of the nation. And I'm like, yes. So, so, I'm like, well, yeah, we'll still go there. Okay. <laughs> and, and he... Um, because he, you know, there's something about the British people, it's, it's so different for, from America, where it's no good to telling British people, oh, everything's going to be fine, we're going to be fine, and we just, you've just got to tell it like it is. And if you just tell it like it is, everybody knows what, where they stand. So when he said, I can promise you blood, toil, sweat, and tears, however that speech went, of course, it always goes out of my mind just when I need it. But he said, that basically, he said, it's going to be really rough. And so everybody thought, okay, now, okay, we're, we're ready for that. We're ready. For, 
don't tell us it's going to be wonderful if, right. if it's not going to be wonderful. And he had, he, he absolutely was a great orator. And my, my mom, I know I keep telling about her stories, but she had a lot of them. Um, remembered after a bombing, uh, their house was very badly, well, they didn't have a house after it, you know, and she herself had uh, been hurt and one thing or another. Um, and he would come to visit different places that had been bombed and just to walk through the people. And mum said it was absolutely remarkable what he did. He did not say a word. He had his boiler suit on, you know, the, that he would wear, his onesie. And um, he's had overalls. His, yeah. He, yeah, yeah. He, they, called him, they called it a boiler suit. And he had um, his daughter with him, Sarah. And uh, she was in uniform. And mum said he, she, was, she watched him. He walked right past her. And then he just, he looked around at the people. He bent down. He said, and she said, literally, the bricks were still hot. He picked up a brick. He looked at it and threw it down with disdain. And that's all he needed to do. Like, wow. you know we know who did this and we know who they are and by god i'm i i, I don't have words for this but his action she said it just galvanized people in, in well, didn't the queen and, and the king at that time didn't they also go among the streets of london the bombed out um, they well um the queen well, visited, visited, visited the east end after i think after buckingham palace was bombed we, she famously said um now i can look the east end in the face i think she was rather glad that Buckingham Palace was hit by a bomb. Because in fact, at the outset of war, uh, the government wanted to send away the princesses. Mm -hmm. And the Queen Mother said, the children will not leave me and I will not leave the king. The king will not leave England. Or perhaps she said it the other way around. The king will not leave England. I will not leave the king and the children will not leave me. And of course, later, uh, Princess Elizabeth, who became uh, the queen, um, she was in the ATS, the Auxiliary Territorial Service, and apparently can still take an engine apart. Obviously, with I know I've seen that picture. They had a, they, she looked so cute in her outfit, you know, yeah, that jeep or something or what. No, well, wasn't treated any differently. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's great. That's great. I think they were showing that on VE Day or something recently. You know, pictures yeah. of her, and it was yeah. Yeah, I mean, what that woman has lived through, honestly, you know. Um, it's it's remarkable, so. isn't it? Yeah. remarkable. Yeah. I can remember years yeah. ago reading a book and gosh, I think it was by, I can't remember the title by the writer from long ago called Howard Spring. And it was, a, he said he had always wanted to write a book about a woman that had lived for a hundred years. And, and he took the, the, this person right throughout their entire life um, in this novel. It was, I think it was very much sort of like commercial fiction of its day, but it, I, I remember it made, really made me think, really made me think what it must what is like to live through these different eras you know and I oh I've asked Tolly that you know the one who was yeah. a young boy who got the banana from the Germans and you know where he grew up and whatever and what he has seen I mean he'll email me or something and we mm -hmm. he texts texts me mm -hmm. I'm like you know just think what you you went through like you know candles <laughs> yeah <laughs> well of course there was like yeah I mean um you know, when uh, you my know. mom was 88 and was admitted <laughs> to hospital, she, she stunned the nurses by saying, can I get Wi-Fi on my laptop here? <laughs> they said, well, actually, no, we don't allow it. And this is a woman who, you know, when she was a kid, she had this experience. You know, they, they used to refer to it in Britain, that not the radio, but the wireless, because it wireless. did not have mm -hmm. wires, except it ran on this thing called an accumulator, which was a, a battery that had to, it, you had a handle to it there, it had to 
take to a garage or Crank something. Crank <laughs> You have to get it topped up and then you put mm -hmm. it back in your wireless again. And, and to stop her being careless and dropping it, her mother had told her, if you drop that, everybody in the, everybody's going to die because it's got this special stuff in it and it, all the smoke will come out and everybody will die. <laughs> and and uh, my mum, of course, dropped it on the way to the garage to get it topped up. And she said she was banging all the doors, telling people to get out, you're all going to die. And this is a woman who, in her lifetime, was using a laptop and Wi-Fi and so on. And uh, oh. I, I think it's... And, and that's why we're blessed in a way that we've been able to meet these people that have informed our, our rights, have informed our storytelling. So many times, I mean, Tali has difficulty walking now, but we go out at night, he drives, and they still he give drives. him a license. <laughs> yes, I believe. Yes. Yeah, yeah well, I won't go there about his driving, but um, he does drive, uh, and we'll go out at night. And we'll go at night, he'll go, especially when I was, I remember I was writing Murder in the Champ de Mars, where I have a body in the moat. In front. Yes, yes. <laughs> I had to put the body there. And so he was like, come on, we're going to find where you can put the body, you know. So he'd drive me around. Now I'd be here where the light hits from here. Or, you know, it was very complicated. And he was going, okay, you know. And then at one time I had to put a Bobby on, body on the K, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> murder on the K. And we would drive down there. So he's always like helping me. But then as we do, Often we're just driving around and he goes, oh, the, you know, the bookstore, Shakespeare and Company, very iconic across from Notre Dame. I'm sure you've gone there. Many people have. He yes. said, this place was a slum. I don't know why it's so fancy now because there's a nice cafe around the corner, literally um, in that part of the end of that building. Um, and actually Shakespeare and Company uh, owns the whole building. Uh, he said, I stayed in this plank there. That's where I would go hide. And a plank means like this, I don't know, like a cubicle, garret, dirty, you know, just a hiding Ew. zone where he would go. Um, it, it, and he would say, I would stay in the plank, you know, and I said, when were you doing that? And he goes, well, I had to go there when, you know, they found out about this. And then he'll talk about, oh, yeah. And then when we were in the Marais, um, in this Place Saint Catherine, we were going by and um, I said, oh, it's so lovely here. I really like it. And he goes, you should have been here in 1937. Oh, you know, we would come here. It was so dirty. And he goes, on each corner, now there's these fancy hotels. He goes, well, this was a hotel de passe, which means a cheap hotel rented by the hour. And then this is the, uh, the other one, the apartment, you know, it was apartments where wealthy men would rent rooms or apartments for their mistresses. There was another name for that. The other corner was the, uh, a, a, another one. I don't know. And then another one, he was going, yeah, so the, the ladies of the night would come out. We loved them. They would give us candy, you know, and we wouldn't go to school. We'd just come out and they'd give us candy. But on this corner in the Marais, there was each kind of, what do we want to say for um, uh, work, certain kind of workers. And there was every kind of category, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. France has. Yeah. And he would talk about that. And I was going here and he goes, oh yeah. And that's where this one, you know, he, he would start talking like your mother just, yeah. talking about this time and and you can cast yourself back I people think, often say that right how can you yeah. cast yourself back i don't i think the, so what you're describing there is something i think very valuable for a writer and it's 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 so easy i think to forget what places might have been like in the past 
And I know when I have been in London and, you know, and been in other places, other cities, um, sort of researching, and, and I, I'm just walking around. And what I have to do is to remember to look up to the upper floors of a building because, okay, so imagine there I am, I've just come from Fitzroy Square, I'm walking down Tottenham Court Road, and, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting, I'm, I'm walking a little route that I know Maisie Dobbs will be walking. And, um, and yet there's, t there's sort of, you know, I don't know, Boots the Chemist, and then there's, you know, the, the Costa Coffee, and then there's all these different, and then there's, you see, a, a big sort of window there where it's, I don't know, whatever the big paper shop is there that I always go into but can't remember the name. So it's all plate glass windows and, and lights and so on, and, uh, and you get H&M and goodness knows what. And I'm thinking, yeah. I have to see this as it was, and yes, I can go and look at photographs, but it's almost like, you know, this, this, this veil comes down over me and I almost start to see it as it was because if I look at the upper floors, they haven't changed much. They yeah. are as they were. And right. then you get that, that sense of place. But I think it really helps. You know, I remember when I took um, my parents, it was their 60th wedding anniversary. And um, I took them up to London for this lovely weekend. And we went on a steam train. We went on the the Orient Express does day trips and we went Oh, on. I remember you talked about that. Oh, yeah. it was, and I love going on steam trains, you know, because I have yeah. to, it, it reminds me what being on a steam train is like because my people go on steam trains in my books, but it was wonderful being in this taxi and I just got the taxi driver to, to take us around and, and my mum said, you know, pointing to, you know, the, the Victoria, um, the big statue outside Buckingham Palace, Victoria Memorial saying, I climbed up on that on VJ day. I was swinging from up there and I'm thinking, gosh, I can just see her as an 18 year old. And then when we went through Covent Garden, my dad had not seen Covent Garden. I don't think he'd been there since he was a boy. And, and his dad was a costermonger, a man who sold fruit and veg from a horse drawn cart. And so that was in the days when it was a real fruit and veg market. You know, and he hadn't been back? And wow. He had no reason to go back. My dad didn't like going to London very much. He was a real London well, that's boy. that's like Leal, you and know, like Leal yeah. used to be. And, yeah. and so it was amazing to get his perspective of when he used to come with me. And then we were walking around and, and it was, I was just soaking it up. I mean, I was absolutely soaking it up. And I think that's, and then, you know, the steam train. That's one of the things I think in a way we have to have to do as writers is to soak up time and place mm -hmm. and, and as best a way we can. And uh, because if you can't get that inside you, you know, how then will you, you put your readers there? You know, and it, well, it's, I, yeah, I often go back to when I first went to Paris, which was in the seventies and then in the eighties, so different from now. And that's what I like the Zara, you know, that's in the Marais. Oh, and, Zara. You know, Zara's everywhere. <laughs> they're everywhere. But I remember that there didn't used to be a Zara. And I go, I'm really coming here. This is, I've been coming here too long. But I remember how it used to be a bit, you know, in the 80s. It was funky and dirty and soot stained and wonderful. You know, it wasn't all redone. And, and when I see it now and then I go, people go, oh, how can you do that? But I do. You know, I had that whiff. In yeah. the seventies and eighties, when it wasn't all cleaned up, yes. you know, it was still also, the you know, yes. from the war. I mean, there were things that were left. Yeah, of course, it was Paris was an open city. It wasn't bombed, but 
um, there were certain things that happened and there's so so I saw that thank God you know and yeah. I, I absorbed that I think I've never forgotten that. is there anything so, that's really on your list that you want to do I mean like like some walk or some experience that you want to have in Paris that you haven't done yet you know yes I want to go um, I've done a lot of things with friends, you know, especially my friend who's underground. Yeah, you done... almost live there. <laughs> well, thank you. But there's one thing I want to do. I want to go to the old film studios outside Paris. Well, it's just in Boulogne, Biancourt, you know, just the, just on the just outside there, beyond the 16th, and and I want to go in the olds where they made the films. Have um, you it's seen still that? studios, but but yeah. it's different now, you know. I would love to go there. Have you seen and, and terrific, see um, and I think people listening in might be interested, terrific documentary, and it's called Be Natural, about the no. French young, oh, I can't believe you, look it up. It's about, okay. of course, her name has gone right off the top of my head, but maybe someone can look it up. Um, gosh, it's, it's the most, it's, it talk about a, a mystery unfolding. It's about this young woman who worked for Gaumont as a secretary in the late 1800s. Uh, French woman. What's it called? What's it called? Be natural, be, okay. be natural, and um, she she and she was there when Gaumont's Gaumont brothers first introduced the moving picture, and of course, all they could see the moving picture, or the only thing they used it for was to sort of people coming out of a station, something mm -hmm. like that. She was only young, and she looked at it and thought, "You could tell stories with this." And she effective, <laughs> she became the world's first filmmaker. She oh, wow. founded her own studios. She came to America and founded a studio. Um, she made a fortune for, for Gaumont before finding, founding her own studio. And there, someone's put it up. It's Alice Guy Blachet. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thank you. Alice Guy Blachet. And she founded the Solak Studios. Now, the early days of movie making, it was, they were actually, um, it was actually based in New Jersey before it moved, mm -hmm. you know, west, um, and actually to Northern California before dropping down to Southern California. But what's fascinating is that her story was lost until this wonderful documentary filmmaker tracked Never everything heard of down. Tra wow. Yes, and, and they were That's asking, amazing. Various famous, it opens with them asking various famous filmmakers, Did, have you ever heard of Alice Guy Blachet? And of course, Martin Scorsese knew all about her because he's an absolute, he's not just a filmmaker, he's a complete film buff, you know, when it comes to the mm. history of film. But that you got, there was some other famous person whose name I can't remember, said, yeah, I know, I know, but no, actually, I've never heard of her. <laughs> you know, and yet you've, you must see it. You will, you will, Cara, it oh, was... I really want to know about, I, I have met Agnès Varda, you know, mm -hmm. the, um, the filmmaker who just passed away, I think last year. I mean, I'm, but, and she was very unique, but I do, I do, I want to go to a studio because I'm really interested in telling a story of post-liberation France with mm -hmm. the film industry. And I obviously need to do a lot more research here. So, oh, any that, other... that, there's your girl, there's your yeah. girl. <laughs> I'll come with you because I'd love to do that. But no, it, yeah, it, let's it's go perfect. to Boulogne-Billancourt. Yeah, I've actually something I haven't done yet, and and it, I I I wanted to do it, you know, my next trip to London, which is obviously now cancelled. Yeah, but I want to do one of those walks along through the underground, uh, that, because there are a lot of disused stations in the underground, and most of them still with their old posters up and things like that, and. 
and this is, sounds an awful way to, I mean, I was curious about it anyway, but my, one of my cousins had this actually terrible experience. She was on the underground um, on 7-7 when um, the terrorists blew up um, various underground stations in London. It was absolutely a disaster and they had to stop all the trains. But what happened was um, uh, one of the uh, London underground workers came along and led everyone on this train along she's she's because they were stuck in a tunnel well every, everything's sure. a tunnel on the underground but they had to yeah. shut down all the electricity and they literally led them out and she said it was a really long walk and they were going through all these different stations and she said jackie i really old stations that i didn't even Ghost know stations people. yeah and in fact i've got um a historic map of the london underground and it shows you every single station that's ever been built plus a history of it's different renamings over the years. So I was able to yeah. sort of identify some of them that she went through. And it was, uh, it was an incredibly horrific, horrific, sad story. But I don't know, there's some kind of lesson there that on a terrible day, you have to walk back through history. And she says yeah. some of those stations had not been used since the war, since people were living, you know, basically as shelters down there. Wow. And um, well, just a tragedy. Well, my friend who's a big, who works for the Paris Metro, um, he actually takes me, he took me down there. I was you've there. Been, you've been down there. All night. Yeah, I've been down there last time I, we were there all night in October. But when I, I have a scene here where Kate is escaping through the Metro from a certain place and a corset shop that still exists and it's wonderful. Um, so I said to Julien, I said, well, if she's going to go out through this, what would it be like this and whatever? And he is like a total nerd with the Metro history. I mean, so he was <laughs> like, well, nerd. now wait, was this 39? No, 39, there was this one. Okay, this one, because some of the Metro lines were privately owned until they were, you know, bought. And then there's the ghost stations. He said, well, no, if it's, okay, if it's 1940 and if she's doing this, then she would be going there and it would be this and this. And so I think I have it accurate for 1940 and she escapes Excellent. because he said this way and that way and he has all the maps and he would draw it. And so, I mean, it's, you know, he's young. I mean, that's kind of amazing. He's so into the Metro. Uh, all his life, he's worked for the Metro. And, but those kind of people really want to share, too. I have another mm -hmm. friend who goes down, and he's an urban explorer underground with the catafils, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the guys who, yeah. Um, and they're not in the catacombs, per se. They're in the aqueducts or in the limestone quarries. I've gone down with them and partied with them under there so fun you know until you get caught right <laughs> yeah but yeah. um it, it's kind of amazing so i've kind of done that mm -hmm. um and i'm again really interested in this this film because you know i mean the french love cinema right and they're so absolutely it's it, it, it's it's a it's a really good documentary and i you know i watch a lot of documentaries for my research and fortunately the the british film institute has uh, i mean britain uh, pretty much founded the whole documentary filmmaking process um, sort of back in the, the, the 30s. And um, it's, it's great to watch some of these old films that have been remastered that are now available, particularly films made during the war. And mm. a lot of them are in black and white. So you have to, and, and although many more are now being, as they say, you know, remastered with color, which is, um, which is, really amazing and of course it's it's what uh, peter jackson did with his 
uh, movie, we, uh, th that terrific movie, which he did. Funnily enough, um, he used um, archive material from the Imperial War Museum. But anyway, it's, it's, I think it's, it's such a rich part of the, the uh, research process. And, and it's, it's amazing that, um, you know, I know readers are often asking me about, well, how much research do you do? And, and the truth is I do research way, and I know you're all the same, way beyond anything that actually goes into the book. And, and as I always say, you know, it's, it's research to me is like an iceberg in that only 7% of it should be visible above the surface but the rest informs every single word you write. It gives a weight to the story. It, it gives, gives a weight, weight to the story. You know, that's there, that's, that's immeasurable. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I could research all the time, personally, in Paris, yeah. you know? I would be very happy to do that. But there comes a time you've got to come you sit down and write. <laughs> you kind of distill all that wonderful stuff. Yeah. And again, this book, I loved writing this book because I could take all my, you know, obsession with World War II and all that time, that period, and I could put it in this story. Yeah. It was so amazing because with Amy, I have to, of course, I mean, it does not serve the story to talk about that unless in certain instances when it does. But this was my, it was kind of a gift. It was, it was a challenge. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. It, it was, I had to do it and I got to do it. And I'm like, yes, you yeah. know, it's. I think, I think I sometimes think it's it's almost an indulgence what I mean that we get to do this because you know I I am really interested in the whole um, not just the history but the role of uh, women war correspondents and so when I wrote the American agent you know I was yes. able to get in inside the head of not just the, a, a woman war correspondent but these other as they call them war casters and um, and recently I'm, I, I wrote a, an essay that was, it was on LitHub um, about women war correspondents through the ages. And it was so wonderful for me to, you know, I, I did research way beyond what I truly needed. But on the other hand, I couldn't have written the book without doing every single bit of it. It might not have landed up there, but it, it, it as you said, it gives weight. It gives way. Yeah, I, I totally know. Well, look at Lee Miller. I mean, I think her son didn't know, right? She died. He didn't know anything about her. She had many lives, right? Yeah. The, the news of Ray and Dada and a Vogue model and then, you know, getting in Hitler's bathtub. I mean, all these yeah. things. Amazing life. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been wonderful if we could have had a chance to talk with her and she could have been appreciated because I guess her ending wasn't so happy. No, you know, um, you I, know, I guess we, the best we can do is, is, you know, do what we do, which is we go to books, we read interviews, we read biographies, and then we visit places. And, and then I think that's when you ask that question again, how would I feel if, and you try and get inside the head of someone and, um, that, that's not such an easy thing to do. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, you have to make some leaps of faith. And at the end of the day, also, mm -hmm. you know, remember that we are the storytellers and we're, we're also in the entertainment business. You know, a lot of people wouldn't like to think of that, uh, that you're in the entertainment business, but people, people spend disposable income. On books. Right, it's and not they, a history they, lesson. It's, yeah. It needs to entertain. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I, I think if you have too much of that, I think that's where the balance comes in. And I know that if, if I've, uh, you know, I, I, 
if I'm reading a novel, I want to read a novel. I don't want to read narrative nonfiction. But what I'm also interested in is, is how did the writer get to this point? And what's the writer's interest and what's their curiosity and, and so on. And that's when, you know, it's nice as a writer to be able to write nonfiction about your work, which is what I know, you know we've both tried to do at times. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, a, yeah. it's an interesting task. So I'm, I'm aware that we've been chatting for an awfully long oh. time. And I think there are some people probably got questions for us. Yes. I, so uh, what I'm sorry about that. Have we, you have we been having us. a chin, a chin wag? A chin, chin wag. Yeah. yeah. I have to say that to Cara. Let's have a chin wag. <laughs> so this is for both of you. Um, will your respective characters ever be dramatized on TV or movies? Oh, I, I, let's just say, um, I, well, I don't know. I, I don't know. For, for my part, there has been um, interest time and again over the years. But the bottom line is, and of course, we're moving into very uncertain times regarding that part of the entertainment industry, <laughs> that it costs an awful lot of money to make a good historical TV series. It really doesn't. People always think, oh, well, that's because of, you know, the, the costumes, but that's the least of it. Um, it's it, to do it well with high production values you need to be spending a lot of money and, and, and literally something like the crown it cost 10 million dollars per hour that you saw on the TV and uh, it, it, even the, the, the worst of the best you're looking at, at over 2 million and, and probably there are filmmakers out there saying who she what's you know what's she on because that's nowhere near it it's much more now that it's a lot of money and, right. and then it begs the question, you know, how do you want to see your character on screen? And I know Cara's had some very um, definite views on that. You, uh, we talked about this once and you said you, you never wanted to see Amy on screen. I don't know whether you've changed your mind about that. Oh, I, no, I never wanted to listen to the story. Oh, um, no, neither do. I never do. <laughs> no, I don't want to do that because I have Amy's voice in my head. Yes. Well, no, I mean, Amy is option, has been option. She's option now. Um, it's not that I didn't want to see her, but when I had someone who wanted to option it, who said, oh, she's just going to be um, American and she's going to live in New York. And I'm like, excuse me? You know? This is a story about a woman living in Paris, isn't that those kind of people? But actually, someone someone is very interested, and they could do a good job. Yeah. Regarding this this book, you know that of course is set in 1940. That again, those production values would cost money. But um, just one side note, if I could say, I don't know if you saw it recently in the Guardian, but just before the the pandemic in Paris. They were making a film set in 1942, you know, during the war, and they had um, my friend's street in Montmartre, because it's so picturesque, and the cobbled streets and the hills and the old buildings. They had taken over these two streets where he lived, and they had done the new store, the old storefronts, you know, so it was the boulangerie, the old, but, and, and again, you were talking about, you just look up and there was all the same. So they had this all as a film set, the people were living there. And then, of course, they started filming and, and they was taking pictures of people in the outfits. And then, of course, it was lockdown. <laughs> so they had everything to stop stops. filming. And everything is still left there, yeah. you know? Maybe now Paris is open. But they had, so here, here they were. And as in the movie, you know, there were German soldiers asking people for their papers. 
he took a picture of a French um, policeman, present day, asking someone for the declaration, you know, the derogatoire, that they can only go out for, you know, an hour a day, you know. And so it was like so eerie. Wow. You know, it looked like the war, there was no one on the street and you had to have papers, right, to go out. And here it was, 1942. Yeah. Look, look it up in the in the Guardian. It's do you know, just I amazing. think I saw that in the Guardian. I do. I remember seeing it now. But, my, you know, going, my friend was Instagramming it all the time. It was yeah. so eerie. Wow, that is yeah. eerie. But you know, talking just one quick point about sort of the costs of films, and and how much it costs to make particularly a historical, but anything. And people don't think of all the money that goes out. But you know, my husband used to work in in TV and film. And he, I remember him telling me that, it, I think it was his first job out of college or something, out of film school. And he was in San Francisco and he was on this set and uh, the, this guy, you know, one of the important people gave him a big wad of cash, big wad of cash and said, go up that street and I want all those cars, whatever it takes to get the cars off the street, we need the cars off the street. And he said, <laughs> literally he'd knock on a door can you move your car? I'm not moving my car because, you know, that's a wonderful thing. I remember Chris Columbus saying the wonderful thing about filming in San Francisco is that people get grumpy. They're not all, <laughs> he said, they're like real people. And he said, and they say, I'm not moving my car. And he'd look, okay, what would it take for you to move? Well, I'd do it for 200 bucks. There's your 200 bucks. Move your car, knock on the door <laughs> next door. Could you move your car? I'm not moving my car. What would it take to make 500 bucks? He said, 500 bucks, move your car. I would he do said, that. Literally, he was up the street. He said he was just giving away money for people to move their cars. And, and, and the guy said, if you need any more, come back and get it. I mean, thousands of dollars. It made me wish I had a car in San Francisco. I know. Well, I do. And I can't. So, yes. No, was not to your door yet. Yeah. Anyway, I guess we should move on to the next question. Yeah. So um, this is also to you both. Uh, if there were such a thing as time travel, what would Amy LeDuc and Maisie Dobbs think about the time in which we live? Oh, that's a good point. Um, what would Maisie think? I, I think she'd have to go away and, and she would have to go away and, and meditate on it all, actually. She, she would walk around and I think she might be, she might be, she would be intrigued. She would be fascinated but she would also weigh up what was lost against what was gained. And then, you know, hold those in her hands and, and you know, feel the weight, the, 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 the value of what was gained and the value of what was lost. And uh, I think that there would be that sense. I think if Amy Leduc came to uh, San Francisco, which people are always saying, why isn't Amy coming to San Francisco? Um, or, you know, and came to Silicon Valley, I think, she also would be weighing things up, what it was like, because she was, you know, in on the beginning of the computer forensic uh, field when there were just three or four uh, people actually doing computer security. We can't remember that, but that's sort of where she came from. So she would be looking at it. She'd be looking at, you know, what, what California, she thought California would be and what it isn't, you know, and, um, Actually, in one of the stories, uh, Rene Murder Below Montparnasse, Rene comes to Silicon Valley. He's, he's enticed to come here and he leaves Amy's uh, detective agency. Boy, is he really, really <laughs> sad that he did that. And it's quite, it was quite fun to play with that. What would he be like for a, a man who's vertically challenged 
to come here and there's just no espresso. You know, there is no good coffee. Here. <laughs> you just can't get over. Everything is so big and the portions are so huge. Um, so yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know, that's, that's about all the time we have. Um, uh -oh. I want to thank you both. This has really been such a delight. And I want to thank everybody for, for we, we have like yes, thank you. 120 thank people. You. This is fantastic. Uh, wow. Take thank care. You, okay. Peter. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. See you, Cara. Take care. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.